This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tone in RPGs. Fomenko's new chronology. Our band phrases list. And John Murray Spear. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the helpful smile of Peter Frampton tell us we've entered once more the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And today in the gaming hut, uh, anything could be on the table, but what's on the table is that tone of yours, young man. Uh, Robin, what do you want to tell us about tone and gaming? So I thought we'd look at a, a perennial question of uh, role-playing games, which is how to actually convey all of the uh, tonal material that you're presented with in your basic books and source books and what have you, or your own notes or ideas of what you uh, want to convey to the players. So I guess first we should set about trying to at least fuzzily define what tone is. I think tone in role-playing is basically your, not only your mood, but the kind of set of visual or imagined cues that kind of relate to the tone. So, for example, the masters of tone uh, conveyance are the gang at White Wolf, who create this sense of pervading menace and decadence and intrigue that all kind of go together to create 
a feeling that you associate with uh, the vampire game and the various assorted spin-offs therefrom. The F20 vibe has its own sort of uh, tone, a little crazier, a little more devil may care, things that you can add and subtract to it. And then, of course, you can mix things up. So with Ravenloft, you can add a gothic tone to your F20 games. Um, and the question then is how much you can do to make players feel that tone at the table and to what extent that is a thing that we aspire to and what extent it's something that we achieve. So Ken, how do you go about differentiating tone from one campaign to another, or do you? Well, I mean, part of it obviously is uh, it's an emergent property that comes out of whatever you're doing. So if you're in a, uh, fictively in a spaceship uh, charting a new supernova and maybe there's a blip on the radar and you're, or, or the LIDAR or the sensors or you don't know what it might be, you can that develops sort of a couple of tones. It's a, a, probably a cool technocratic tone and then a little tension, a little military snare drum type tone. But if it's uh, a Cthulhu game and you're moving through a crumbling warehouse on the outskirts of some godforsaken New England port city and there's creaking in the water and a little muffled splash that sounds like a dead body being lowered out of a rowboat. I hate creaking water, man. Yeah, you, you hate the creaking water. You hate the, uh, the the rest of that. Although a watery creek, I have no objections to. Watery creek. You have no objection to that either, oddly enough. Um, that's the weirdness of tone. But that that tone would be more... Uh, you're, you're, you're the same anticipation is, is there as with the, the things coming up in the sensors, the, the blips coming up in the sensors, but the anticipation is ideally tinged with a more revulsion, right? So you're, you're, you've got unpleasant things that are happening in your, and your, and your senses of darkness and of closing in uh, horror. And then again, you can do a different uh, version of the same thing with superheroes and, uh, you know, a, a brightly comparisoned guy with uh, energy bolts shooting out of his hands, bouncing off the mirrors uh, that are supposed to be providing the cops with clues to catch him, but instead are merely refracting his dazzle beam, and everyone in the 7-Eleven suddenly turns around with the same color in their eyes. And that that had a little bit of a, of a, of a left turn to it, but it was sort of a, a bright four-color. You can follow the action. It's pretty clear, and uh, you don't want to say simplistic, but let's say straightforward, right? It's, it's very much a, there's a guy, he's in a red cape, he's got these guys, what are you going to do? type tone. And that's, I think a lot of that same tone comes up, as you said, in the F-20, where it's often a very jaunty, you've got your plus one sword, it's glowing blue, that means there's orcs, everyone get in your fighting order, let's go, let's do this. And so that sort of, you know, I guess what you might call American weekend sports tone is maybe the default for a lot of games that are uh, mostly about the punch em up, and then other games that are about some other activity, whether that be um, in, in, in at least, uh, in, in your imagine. And in many ways, you know, the rules don't necessarily support the tone in, in a lot of White Wolf, uh, games, but the tone is established so well by the source material that you still have that, uh, that, that sense of, of being crushed under a stultifying society and the rest of it. And when you're playing vampire, you have the same sense of lowering doom when you're playing Cthulhu in the same sense of tense, exploration that you have if you're in a, a space opera type game. So I think that it comes emergently out of the things that are happening, you know, on the mental screen. And then obviously the quickest and easiest way you can use, you can establish tone as the GM is adjectives and adverbs. Those things you're not supposed to use when you write because God forbid uh, anyone should ever know what's happening in, you know, more than one color. And also 
the, 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 the sort of the, not just the word choice, but word positioning. So if you spend a lot of time on the, on the creepy things, and then you sort of mention offhand that there's something, uh, that they've seen through the, 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 the cracks in the, in, in the old, uh, warehouse, uh, wall, then they, you know, they're, oh, I don't know. Do I want to go over the crack and put my eye next to it? I don't think so. But, in the sensor, you might set, still say, "Well, there's a there's a slit in the in the in the in the quoton receptors that uh, you're pretty sure that if you decouple from A, you can you can send a single lidar beam through that, and that that's more adventurous. It's like, oh, I want to look I want to look through that and find out what's going on there. So you you can sort of present it in terms of how you choose just the words of the same sort of thing. It was it was same. Look through a slit and see what'll happen." But in the science game, you're more sciencey about it, and you're more straightforward and, and focused. And in horror, you're obviously holding back the fact that something's going to chew your eyeball off when you put it up to the up, up to the slat there. Right. So tone has a lot of different elements, and I wonder if we can sort of begin to uh, list them. Uh, one of them would be genre reference. You mentioned describing a particular uh, use of technology in a science fiction game, and you could go through the various ages of science fiction and derive different moods and tones from that. So something that uh, where you're trying to evoke uh, golden age science fiction uh, is going to call on you to use uh, different images uh, sort of, uh, and even names for characters and uh, descriptions of technology than if you're trying to evoke uh, uh, Robert Heinlein than if you're trying to evoke uh, 70s uh, science fiction or the sort of uh, uh, new wave of science fiction or, again, sort of the more kind of series-oriented back to sort of pulpy wish fulfillment that uh, SF is kind of headed in of, of late. And so everything from sort of original space opera to today's nouveau space opera, all of them have different reference points and different... Uh, and then, of course, you're even more likely to score people's... Uh, collective understanding of what you're going through tonally if you have references to film and television just because people sitting around the table are all more likely to have seen the same movies than to have read the same books yeah so pastiche is an element of tone because if you have characters who uh seem like they're from a doc smith novel uh you are that's going to immediately tell people what the sort of range of emotions and possibilities are the sorts of things that will and also the sorts of things that probably won't happen in uh, that story and if you say to them well this is you know doc smith meets lovecraft that's a collision of two different tones. And that, again, is going to suggest to you the range of possible emotional responses that you're going to have. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, we're talking about tropes there in terms of things, not just that establish that you're in a genre, but in what specific subgenre or what flavor, or as you say, what era of the genre we're dealing with. I think word choice is sort of an aspect of that, because if you say starkly a couple of times, people will start heading in the E.E. E. Doc Smith direction. Just like if you say uh, squamous a couple of times, people will start heading in the Lovecraft direction. And uh, I think another element of it is just your presentation of it at the table. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, you have to jump up and stride around and uh, shout at people if you're in a, a war movie or whatever, but you can put tone into your voice. You can sound, uh, you know, confident. You can sound dubious. You can sound creepy. You can sound any number of different ways. And the combination of what you're narrating and what you're, 
and what your uh, what your vocal quality is. With with horror, often what I do is I will either lean in and speak more quietly so that the character, the players pull their heads together, and so you're getting a little unconscious uh, huddle around the campfire Neolithic uh, sense memory. Or I will speak in a very straightforward, plain voice, but I have to be unreeling something really, really terrible in that voice so that the contrast between my delivery and the awful stuff they should be imagining is really hitting, and so that my delivery doesn't get in the way of them imagining something awful. Because the last time you want to be giving your your most Vincent Price fruity and then the fingers were covered with human blood type voice is when you're actually describing a corpse that you want the characters to be emotionally involved with or terrified by, right? Your Vincent Price fruity voice is maybe for either a specific subgenre of of horror or maybe a little bit of a of a Raven Lofty type thing where you're layering that uh, that uh, AIP not even hammer onto uh, the other uh, source material or you are presenting a, a character within the universe who is uh you know disturbing in the same way that a Vincent Price character is meant to be disturbing to the characters in a Vincent Price movie another component of tone is reality level in terms of uh, you have, uh, if we want to look at superheroes, there there's a range of possible uh, things that can happen when one superhero punches another. It can be sort of the uh, golden age thrills where it's all in good fun and uh, no punch to the head ever results in a concussion. And there's, uh, you know, Batman 66 uh, blams and splats on the uh, imagined uh, Chiron. Or uh, you could have uh, a... Uh, big cosmic level thing where you're uh, leveling whole city blocks and that can be done in a way that ignores the consequences of that as you would see in a 70s comic or you can uh, uh, sort of make more apparent the incredible devastation that's being wrought by a, a superhero comic and the filmic reference points for that would be you know the avengers a big fight against the aliens has a much different emotional tone than the one from that a recent horrible Superman movie. And you could have, uh, you know, sort of the gritty kind of street level uh, stuff that you see in like the, the Green Arrow uh, show. Or again, you could have a, a, a revisionist layer of reality where uh, the supervillain, you know, is the supervillain layer a big uh, James Bond style uh, set? Or is it like a, a crummy office hidden in an industrial park? What are the... Uh, are you taking the tropes of superheroism and making them uh, real and accessible by grounding them in mundane detail? Or is this uh, a Jack Kirby comic come to life? So uh, these all tell you uh, all sorts of things, not only emotionally, but about what you can expect to happen to your character when he is hit with an arrow, for example. And it would be quite different. You know, the GM would describe a quite different series of events if you're hit by an arrow in a a gritty, realistic, street-level superhero game than uh, if it's, uh, you know, Jack Kirby Town, in which case, you know, all manner of craziness could result. Yeah, um, and I did that, I mean, I, I did, I really sort of, in, in a lot of ways, the whole question of tone is what I was sort of exploring on the uh, the tactical level or the pragmatic level or the felt level when I ran the game that I ran where every adventure was in a different genre. The characters played immortals who lived from 
uh, well, from whenever they live, but they started out in the 1860s, and we started with a Vernian voyage extraordinaire, we went through a Western, we went through an Edisonade, an Edwardian children's story, uh, 1930s golden age science fiction, sort of um, spacey uh, Michael Moorcock, 60s dystopian 70s, all the way down, and although the characters were the same, and the superhero punch-em-up action was broadly the same, I had to introduce everything possible to change the tone so that it would match the genres. And that includes uh, what we've been talking about, the tropes, we've been talking about the descriptions, we've been talking about ways to use the language, ways to describe things, but also the actual nature of the opponent is a thing that kind of establishes tone. You know, your your character responds differently if he's going up against um, deep ones than if he's going up against even Sahuagin, much less orcs, right? The, the the core of, of pre-stored information about that foe includes tone to some extent, right? Uh, you know, Jack the Ripper, you, 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 you describe Jack the Ripper, they begin with the tone of foggy London, scary, uh, hates women, big knife, uh, probably a scummy aristocrat, Freemason guy. And if you want to play with Jack the Ripper, you start changing that up. But Jack the Ripper begins with this sort of default set of connotations that you can reinforce and establish with the with the specific verbiage you use if you're introducing Jack the Ripper. But, uh, for example, to introduce Jack the Ripper into a sort of wacky uh, 60s Moorcock or a, or a upward-moving uh, Lensman-type story, you'd have to change it and play with it, and the act of changing and playing with Jack the Ripper to get him into the uh, E.E. Doc Smith science fiction universe would tell you the kinds of tonal differences between uh, post-Victorian true crime horror and, you know, what, what you're dealing with, with uh, the, the sort of uh, insane optimism of, of Doc Smith, right? Right. A crime scene is going to look very different in something that essentially is kind of happy and optimistic and has kind of a low stakes uh, sense to it, uh, rather than one that emits a lot of darkness and uh, gore. Before we uh, exit the, the gaming head, I do want to get to the point of... Uh, as a GM, there's only so much you can do to control tone because it will be overridden a lot by the interpersonal dynamic you have at the table. So that if you have a group of players who are uh, very into feeling the emotions of their character and visualizing what's going on uh, and are uh, very uh, serious about their role playing, you're going to have people who are going to pick up on the tone that you're trying to convey and they're going to amplify it more than you're going to get with a group that is more social or more jokey or that they uh, show up as much to enjoy zinging each other and having good time as they do to uh, imagining what is going on in the campaign. And it may very well be that over the course of an evening that even that second group, although the tone does not seem as consistent if you're observing what they're doing and the jokes that are being made, that the moments that they're flashing on in terms of thinking of the dark situation that you've thrown them or uh, being emotionally involved, that may oscillate through the evening and they may leave the session feeling just as engaged by the tone, although it wasn't apparent throughout, as you got with that group that is much more conscious about helping you maintain it. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously players who are helping you, players who are cooperating are the players that you as the GM prefer, I think, in a lot of cases, but I think that if a tone, if there's a tone fail in the game, it is 99% of the time the fault of the GM, because the play, the characters, the players, if they're making a bunch of stupid jokes and distracting themselves, they're doing it because you're not doing your job 
of providing either tonal cues or something interesting for them to actually concentrate on. And God knows that's true in my own games. Uh, although I like to give players a lot of rope to figure out what they want to do because it helps them, I think, engage in the world more realistically when they do come back and play it on it, as you point out. But the even the, the stupidest, you know, out-of-character comment can be easily subsumed and pulled back in. As you say, players have a really great ability to two-track it and to keep the, the stupid comments in one part and the actual events of the story in the forefront of their head. And if you don't get herring off chasing the stupid comment and you come back and you layer on or represent or uh, rededicate or double down or whatever it is you have to feel like you have to do, or even, you know, add a second tone that highlights the first tone, um, then the players, I think, will catch, will pick up on that and they will follow you. And, but you have to be doing the, the, the presentation and the leading and, that's true whether you're the official GM or whether you're in one of the exciting new indie games where everyone is the GM, but it's just your turn to do it. And um, I think that the the tone, you know, people like to blame players for getting, you know, distracted and herring off after stuff. But I think in my experience of having a lot of very distractible players, um, if tone fails at the end of the day, it's because the GM didn't think about it and didn't try to maintain it. And I think maintaining it, because there's so many different ways to do it, it turns out to be, I think, easier than you think it does once you start going in. Because, again, assuming even a minimal degree of cooperation, player characters, if you're describing a superhero fight, will be thinking about the Avengers, or they'll be thinking about Captain America. They won't be thinking about Twilight or H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, because that's just not how people's brains work, right? Right. And when people are getting jokey and are, are drifting away, uh, that's a power that you as the GM can use, because... If you're doing something that involves a certain amount of tension, that uh, if they're on a high because somebody made a funny joke, the uh, shock or fear or low point that you're going to hit them with when the uh, centipede crawls out of uh, one of their flesh and starts flopping around on the table is going to be all the more heightened. Uh, and that gets into the, the whole uh, emotional up and down uh, theory of narrative engagement that you find in uh, Hamlet's hit points, for example. But I think we've uh, uh, maintained our tone pretty consistently throughout this segment, so it's time to uh, break the rhythm with another segment. This episode is also brought to you by OdysseyCon 15. Madison, Wisconsin's very own OdysseyCon 15 takes place from April 10th to the 12th, 2015. At the Crown Plaza Hotel. Featuring literary guest of honor, Jonathan Mabry. Literary guest of honor, Heather Brewer. Literary and game design guest of honor, Matt Forbeck. That's twice as good a guest of honor. Four full tracks of panels, writing craft, literature, gaming, and media. Or check out the art show. Benefit auction. The Bluebeard Comedy Show. Cosmo Joe's Bright Paint Art Demos. Weather permitting. D&D Adventurers League games. Pathfinder Society events. Open tabletop gaming. Zombie prom. Full service con suite. And miniatures paint and take. Robin, both you and I have done the guest thing at Odyssey Con. Uh, yeah, I'd really recommend, uh, as I depart from the script, that anyone who wants to go should go, because it's a well-run, relaxed show with a lot of great programming. And also, the con works really hard, I think, to make the guests available to the fans, but also you can sort of just chill out and 
kind of move at your own speed. It kind of combines that good relaxicon quality of a good science fiction con with the full plate of possibility that a good gaming or, or multimedia con does. They've sort of managed to thread that needle, I think. So if you're within driving distance of Madison and wondering whether you should head on out... You definitely should. Find out more at odysseycon.org. It's time for another installment of Ask Ken and Robin, and this time a question from Roger Bell West also takes us into the shadowy confines of the Elliptony Hut. Uh, he asks us for a consideration of Fomenko's new chronology, and when his question first hit the Ask Ken and Robin desk, I sort of thought to myself, oh man, another new chronology. There, We've done those a couple of times, and the, the challenge with them is always sort of... Uh, um, moving away from the fringe lunacy of somebody's arcane theory of uh, when things happen in history to actually activating them. But the more I looked at this, uh, this may be the ultimate onion skin layer of different uh, layers of uh, craziness. And it's there's just one uh, nutty delight after another. So, Ken, what does the outermost layer of the gobstalker of wackadoo that is Fomenko's new chronology? The outermost layer is a thick and imposing four volumes of text by uh, Anatoly T. Fomenko, translated, if that is the word, um, by... <laughs> a, a, a still-living uh, elliptinist? <laughs> yes, a, a living elliptinist, a Russian mathematician, which tells you pretty much, I think, everything you need to know. It's that classic thing of the person who's an expert, uh, a recognized expert in one field who uh, goes astray when he uh, steps out of his field and tries to apply his expertise to something else. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's a, he's, he's a, he's a geometry guy primarily and a topologist. So he's always thinking about how you map surfaces onto other surfaces and prove that they're the same. And I suspect <laughs> that that is the bottom of his magical new chronology. And I just want to point out that everyone's all hip and excited about new chronology, but I I pointed out about Fomenko way back in 1998, so if you've been reading Suppressed Transmission then, you would know what I know. I mean, you may not know all of it, because you probably have better things to do than read his giant, horrible tome. But the bottom, the sort of the opening gun for Fomenko is to rail against the fact that we don't actually have, when we talk about Julius Caesar, we don't have Julius Caesar's actual diary to look at. We have medieval copies of ancient copies of Julius Caesar's diary, or actually of Julius Caesar's political campaign uh, book. And if you, you know, if you go and you read, say, you know, Hillary Clinton's book or, or Barack Obama's book or Ted Cruz's book, you may have a new sense for exactly what the Gallic Wars is. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Caesar did at least have to conquer Gaul first. And, and were his uh, generals forced to buy his book in bulk? <laughs> I suspect all kinds of people were forced to buy his book in bulk. <laughs> That's what being Caesar means. Yes, but, but we digress. But we do. Um, this being said, Fomeko makes the perfectly valid point that we don't actually actually have historical sources that go back to historical times. What we have is medieval copies and medieval recensions and various uh, handwritten versions of the, of the things that eventually turn out, uh, once we invent printing, to get uh, reified using um, uh, basically critical reading um, into 
a assumed text. And it's the critical reading part, I think, that, that, that breaks him. He doesn't think that there's any such thing. There's a great long bit about eclipses, which you can frankly skip. But the bottom line... <laughs> I make it a policy to skip any chapter named a big long bit about eclipses. I, that, it may have been different in the original Russian. But his <laughs> basic argument is that we come out of the Middle Ages with four versions of history, A, B, C, and D, uh, and these versions of history are all the same history. So when we have what we think is the history of England, it's actually the history of Byzantium. And when we have the history of the Holy Roman Empire, it's actually the history of Byzantium. And we have the history of Italy, it's actually the history of Byzantium. So, for example, um, the Norman Conquest in 1066 is actually the Fourth Crusade in 1204. They're the same thing, uh, because Robert de Villehardouin, who conquered Byzantium, is the same as William the Conqueror, who conquered England. See how clearly that works out? I'm convinced. So, yeah, I mean, it's just that simple. Yeah, um, common sense. Uh, Egbert, the uniter of England, uh, reigned 38 years. Justinian the Great, reuniter of the Roman Empire, also reigned 38 years. Clearly the same person. <laughs> and Honest to God, it goes through that over and over and over, except the parallels get less exact, <laughs> because they don't actually match. <laughs> it gets sloppy over time. It, it does get a little sloppy <laughs> over time. There's a a, a great uh, expression, which turns out to be written by one of your national compatriots, a guy named John Robert Colombo. Uh, History never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And if you took that not as poetry, but as... Uh, chronology, you are talking about Fomenko, because what Fomenko's argument is, is that all of these histories, once you run them through a st uh, statistical analysis and take all the distracting names and happenings out, <laughs> it turns out that uh, reigns of kings statistically match each other more than he thinks they should by chance, although since we're still dealing with people in basically similar monarchies. I'm not sure why he thinks there isn't some underlying rhythm behind yeah, that. Statistically, people tend to reign anywhere from... Uh, two to 70 to, years. To two to 70 years. Right, that's, yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a rounding error. <laughs> right. So he, he's got he, he's got that going on. Um, he, as I say, lots of crazy stuff about eclipses in which he argues that everyone's eclipse dates are wrong, based, I think, entirely on his very great belief that they should be. But the <laughs> bottom line of the new chronology is that the only true history is the history of Byzantium and then the history of Russia, because he is a great Russian patriot. Yes, here's where it's, it's all, there's only one Russian horde, it turns right. out. Uh, yeah, that, that all the conquerings of, um, uh, of Russia are, are, are wrong. And so everyone's history is Russian history. Everyone's history is Byzantine history. I'm not sure how he explains how, say, everyone got to Great Britain if they were actually over in, um, uh, uh, Byzantium, or if he just assumes that everyone was literally uh, living in skin huts and illiterates until some unknown Byzantine showed up and taught them what their history should have been, circa 1300 AD. I mean, they, you, you think that the, um, uh, the, the Vilikovsky guys or the new creationists are crazy. I mean, Try taking all recorded history down to the last 600 years. Or yes, we're, we're, uh, I think we're bearing the lead a bit by not uh, underlining the fact that he thinks that history begins uh, at 800 uh, A.D. Well, really 1,000 A.D. Yeah, close, closer to 1143 than 800. Um, I think 800 is another uh, recycling because uh, the... Um, I think Charlemagne is supposed to be the same thing as... Oh, I don't know who he's supposed to be the same thing as. Probably Leo the Great. Um, let's say Leo the Great. 
<laughs> but the, the the end result is that all of history is sort of a nested set of of, of spheres or or patterns that map onto each other. And this is where the, a guy who thinks about nothing but topology and how Russia got screwed uh, turns up to create the, the magical wonder that is um, uh, his chronology. So, uh, and there's all sorts of wonderful rationalizations at work. So, for example, uh, coins are not to be admitted as evidence because, of course, that's circular reasoning. Um, right. Not, not just because coins are circular, but because they just refer to this... Uh, in any reference, and it can be configured to the chronology. And uh, the fact that uh, carbon dating or dendrochronology exists, no, they don't. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. <No. laughs> um, or he, he makes the perfectly valid argument that the assumption of a steady rate of carbon decay is an assumption that in a lot of cases is assumed because we think we know how old the thing is we're carbon dating, right? So uh, we know, for example, in real history, that the rate of carbon decay has changed since... Uh, the invention of the atomic bomb and the beginning of atomic testing, right? That uh, those have screwed up carbon dates in a lot of places. You know, if you've got a, a log or something that was close to the surface and it caught a whiff of strontium, it's going to screw up your carbon-14 dates. So Fomenko's point, if I may call it that, is that <laughs> we don't know what was going on back in the past, and we don't know that carbon has been decaying the same rate over, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's crazy talk. Only topology is the real science. Your foolish chemistry and physics. Ha ha, I laugh. Right. And it's not just that people are ignorant. It's that people are actively conspiring to hide this truth. Well, sure they are. Uh, the the, the English-speaking world is doing it because they're the ones who are basing all of their claims on this pretend history that doesn't exist, right? There's some sort of weird... Uh, again, I'm not exactly sure what he says. <laughs> who Who built the British Empire if it wasn't the British. But, um... Uh, his, a rounding error. His, his British argument, Empire is a rounding error. His, his argument that, um, uh, I guess maybe John Dee, because the dates are about right, that uh, the, the John Dee or Geoffrey of Monmouth got together and developed this great, uh, you know, con, long con, this work to mess with the Russians and convince them that they've always been a backwards uh, tribe of half-savage av- Asiatics instead of the literal core of European existence. Um, I'm not, and again, I'm not sure how he thinks that worked or when that happened. Maybe it was World War One. Everyone snuck in and changed all the all the calendars. I around. think he blames the Enlightenment for it, doesn't he? Uh, well, the Enlightenment, he, he blames um, uh, the uh, Scaliger, the guy who invented well critical reading and uh, chronological. Uh, he, he was the first guy to sort of try and make sense of all of the ancient dates. Uh, Newton does the same thing. He has a great chronology that's also uh, considered to be wrong now, um, but. Uh, he, uh, he really has a bone to pick with this guy, Scalinger. But uh, Scalinger's father taught uh, Nostradamus medicine, so we've got that going on. Uh, modern chron- chronological science is uh, uh, created by Joseph Justice Scalinger with the book De Emendatione Temporum, The Improvement of Time, which, if you read it in the right uh, tone of voice, I guess, does sound like the kind of conspiracy that uh, he's talking about. So it's taken us uh, a whole segment length just to unravel all of this. Connected. And it's barely unraveled. Trust me, we have we have skipped over and glossed. Uh, we, we have treated Fomenko like he treats eclipses. <laughs> so uh, are there elements of uh, the supernatural creaking into his uh, uh, fringe science, or is it all uh, strictly rationalist? Uh, aside from well, <laughs> aside from not being rationalist, rationalist at not all. rational. <laughs> Let's make a distinction there. <laughs> um. Let's see. I don't know that there is a supernatural component, qua supernatural component. I think that you could easily 
you, I, I think that if you wanted to explain rationally how Fomenko's rational history came to be, you have to invoke the supernatural because there really are too many open questions and why do people believe this again and how come Scaliger convinced everyone if the Byzantines knew better and the Russians, who had Byzantine records, obviously, knew better. Uh, you know, I, I can believe an argument where Scalinger convinces the West that this happens. I want to know who Fomenko thinks convinces the Russians that it happened. And that's, you know, an I mean, is it Peter the Great killing off all the old believers and accidentally breaking the chronology? Uh, so I, I, I think that you have to have a supernatural component to make Fomenko's arguments even internally consistent. And then obviously it makes a great thing for Yogg-Sothoth to have done to the world and your characters discover it, and that's what blows their mind and drives them crazy. Or that uh, you can use his topological construction of time in a time travel game and say that you can travel between any of these four histories uh, by simply sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, carbon dating your, your, your way out of it or, or coining your way out of it or during an eclipse or something. Now, in time travel stories, uh, it is a... A common plot device to have history collapse in on itself and become one. I think that's the uh, climax of uh, more than one of the uh, nouveau Doctor Who seasons. So, uh, uh, <laughs> really, <this> could... <laughs> I think that the Doctor Who is actually just one season of Doctor Who, and they're repeating it over and over and over again in much the way that history repeats itself yes. over and over and over again. Well, you know, a trope is a trope. Uh, so, uh, this could, uh, Fomenko's theory could be like a collective memory of, uh, when the time travelers mistakenly collapsed everything in on each other. Right. And there are still little frayed little bits that are still kind of collapsed. So, um, it's often in a time travel campaign, you will have the premise that you're trying to, uh, preserve history or to, uh, rearrange it or fix it. And, uh, you could have a, a kind of a twist on that where you're trying to just kind of unfold it from a previous time collapse and there's all any little evidence that you see lying around that seems sort of Fomenko-ish is evidence of the uh, timeline having uh, fallen in on itself and we've mostly fixed it but now your job is to go back to Byzantium and uh, uh, fix this little wrinkle here and undo it and pull this skein of time uh, back apart to its regular chronology and then when you get there, you get in the usual time trouble. Keeping in mind that Byzantium is probably, given its sort of central role in Fomenko's new chronology, probably where the first accident or the big accident was. And maybe it was time guys trying, for the best of reasons, to avert the Fourth Crusade, which is a, a classic example, or to avert the fall of Constantinople in 1453. And they succeeded, and the alternate history existed, and then it fell in, and that falling in pulled in all of history in this great ball. But when you're in Byzantium... You are in that other sort of staple of time, which is the place where other times sort of wander through and no one minds. So you're down there at the Imperial Parks, uh, you know, tossing popcorn to the um, uh, to the Diplodocuses, or um, you actually meet Julius Caesar coming out of the 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 baths, washing his hands after conquering uh, Pontus or whatever it is. And so you you've got a, a sense that Byzantium during these few years before the sack is actually sort of a a, a temporal Casablanca or Lisbon, where everything can sort of show up without consequence. Uh, right. Well, I guess before this uh, podcast collapses in on itself, it's time to uh, get to another segment.
riffling flip of dictionary pages, the sound of someone saying euphonious over and over, and <laughs> euphonious, and the crunch of our alphabet serial tell us we have entered the word hut. And the word hut, uh, we could perhaps argue that all of our huts are word huts, given our prolix tendencies. They're, but they're, they're wordy huts. They're wordy huts. But in this specific hut, we look at the actual thumpy bits that make up uh, talking and writing, the words themselves. And today, Robin, you are going to try and get some combinations of words thrown out of the word hut, never to darken our towels again. Well, there are things that I'm trying to throw out of my own personal lexicon, and I thought I would uh, hit you up for what yours were. I'm sure all of us uh, have little things creep into our uh, vocabulary that we would like to uh, have creep back out again. Mm -hmm. And this started out being labeled as a how to write good, but then I realized it's really how to talk good. Yeah. Because these are not things that I would... Uh, usually let slip into uh, things for publication, although we're going to get to a couple that I'm tempted to include or sometimes do include in sort of business correspondence. But, so, <laughs> well, those that's different words. <laughs> well, yes, it's its, its own uh, language and uh, hopefully a, a telegraphic and terse one. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, for example, uh, I, uh, over the last year or so, have, I think, pretty much successfully trained myself out of using the idiom drank the Kool-Aid, uh, which is one of those things that I think now uh, probably the kids today don't necessarily even uh, know where the, it's distasteful origins. the, the source of, of this uh, saying. But basically the meaning is supposed to be someone who uh, believes their own uh, nonsense and has convinced themselves in, in, into something. But, of course, it comes from the uh, horrible Jonestown massacre in Guyana in the 70s where a uh, charismatic... A uh, cult leader named Jim Jones, once he was starting to feel uh, pressure of the government closing in on himself, then engaged in uh, what at the time was portrayed as mass suicide, but once you look at the actual story, is murder suicide on mm -hmm. a vast scale where a large number of people, including uh, children and babies, were forced to drink poisoned drink mix. And so that's distasteful in itself. It's sort of gallow humor to invoke that, which I do not in itself object to. Uh, I'm prone to gallows humor myself at times. But the fact that it's just a wrong historical metaphor, because really it means, uh, <laughs> you know, you drank the Kool-Aid. That means you were murdered by someone who forced you to poison yourself at the butt end of an assault rifle. So mm -hmm. uh, not only is that an ugly image, but it's just... Wrong. Historically, and so would you accept, say, ate the applesauce from the uh, from the Heaven's Gate guys? From the Heaven's Gate guys, um, if people, uh, as far as we know, all those people voluntarily did that to themselves. Yeah, they were mostly grown-ups. If, if that were in, in chrono chronologically speaking, yes. If, yeah. if that were the uh, if that were the idiom and that were the story that uh, uh, began that, I would not feel any sense of uh, being tasteful about that. Okay. So if, if anyone wants to have the project of replacing. The thing uh, that we say with that thing that we don't say, I might be on board with that. Okay. So, Ken, what are you trying to strike from your uh, speechifying? Well, I think we've covered this previously in a How to Write Good, and I still hate it so very much. And this is not because it is um, uh, uh, morally wrong in any way. I just hate the, the locution. Uh, reach out instead of contact or talk to or canvas or any of the other perfectly good verbs that we have, meaning get in touch with someone. It is poisoned Hollywood scripts, and you can't watch any drama. It's even gotten into Justified, which was like a beautiful Elmore Leonard-colored 
uh, vibra- vibratory bubble, like around the Invisible Gorilla City. Um, they, they had an Elmore Leonard bubble around everyone in that show talking like Hollywood scriptwriters, but they started to say, reach out there. Um, which by now, for God, God knows, cops may actually say it, but it's, but it's, it's horrible, phony Hollywood speak, and I just hate it, and so I don't say I'm gonna reach out to that guy unless I'm being, uh, deliberately ironic and then saying that I don't actually want to talk to this guy in any way whatsoever. Um, and, and so I'm just trying to purge it because I, I just hate the locution. It, it, it's oily and, 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 and contemptible and, and sounds like the, uh, 55 minute hour and the, and the rest of that, you know, icky, uh, self-involved screenwriter universe that I'm, <laughs> that I, I have to put up with in order to see Black uh, Widow or Black Canary hit someone, but I don't have to put up with it in my own, uh, dialogue. Now, uh, this is sort of like our movie list because it's this was on my list as well. Yeah. Except once I put it on my list, I started to feel somewhat ambivalent about it, and uh, I share <laughs> well, that's that's a good old Canadian response right yeah, there, though. I, now I share a similar distaste for it because of its origins, and in fact, it's it's an example of Milch speak. The uh, TV writer David Milch added this to our lexicon through NYPD Blue, where the characters spoke in this sort of uh, heightened language, uh, particularly in the early seasons, that was sort of its own idiom. And you could tell that he had probably spent a little while hanging around a New York City police department and picked up a bunch of things that those guys said or or somebody said, and then had them repeated on the show again and again. So another one was through shots instead of shot somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, obviously that's probably, you know, cop lingo at a particular uh, police uh, precinct or or whatever, but then through repetition he uh, established them and and reach out comes from NYPD Blue and from that went into other TV shows and I think that it goes with you know you do hear people say that yeah and in the same way that mobsters are now deliberately patterning their behavior even Russian mobsters are deliberately patterning their behavior on uh, Francis Ford Coppola and and his script decisions yes um however uh, the the counter argument to striking that from the list is actually it is a somewhat more economical way of, because uh, it doesn't just mean I will contact you, and it doesn't just mean I will ask you for a favor. It means I will contact this person I know in my network of people who owe me favors and ask them for a favor. So actually, as uh, milchy and annoying as it is, it may aggravatingly be much more uh, a much more compact expression of a whole series of connotations and therefore might stay in the lexicon or even be worth saying in business correspondence well perhaps in business correspondence with people that you uh, are expecting to uh, milch for their money and not establish a respectful relationship with certainly if i'm writing to someone as a writer i don't want to write in my business correspondence something that i'm not going to write in my writing that seems like uh false advertisement. So given that you uh, had the same uh, reach out as me, there's other things that you certainly didn't grow up, but I grew up hearing the far less decorous version of the thing that I always still have to consciously remind myself to say, which is uh, snake in the woodpile or skunk in the woodpile. And when I want to say that there is a bad element lurking within this seemingly innocuous uh, surrounding... I still find myself reaching back for the very untoward version of that. The career ending version. (laughs) The career ending version of that. And then, but the thing is, because I think a lot of people know the origin that I'm talking about. And, you know, I apologize to foreigners who may not, because this will just be hopefully, you know, 
murky to you. But English people might know it, though. Uh, Agatha Christie is terrible. But because people know the origin, when you if you find yourself saying skunk in the woodpile a lot, it sounds very much like you really want to say the other thing, and you're consciously faking it. It's bringing that thing, that's bringing the image to mind, even though you're avoiding using right, it. Right, exactly. And so I am trying to come up with something that means as colorfully and economically snake in the woodpile without involving the damn woodpile anymore. Now, now does fly in the ointment do it? Or fly in the ointment a... is more like an annoyance, right? It's like, oh, there's a fly in the ointment. Uh, whereas a, a, a skunk is, is something that's skulking and is going to uh, create bad smells and, and trouble all around, right? Or a snake is something dangerous. And I think that, uh, you know, the fly in the ointment is just, a, oh, there, there's, a, there's a contaminant or, a, or an annoyance. But the other thing is, is an active danger. And I guess you could say, you know, something like, you know, werewolf in the cane break, but then that yeah. makes no damn sense. So there's a thief in the party. There's a thief in the party. <laughs> there's, an, there's a half orc assassin in the in the party mix, <laughs> or there's a hazelnut in the something party I've mix. Something I've tried to. Uh, well, and speaking of politically fraught, your uh, your can of mixed nuts. Uh, yeah. Uh, brings up some unfortunate past associations too. Um, something that I try to uh, <laughs> avoid. Resilience are so sensitive. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the thing that I'm trying to uh, also cut out of my uh, lingo is begs the question. Oh well. Uh, which yeah. we now use as a synonym for raises the question. Speak for yourself when uh, you say we, okay. Robin, because I do not. I am. I'm going to die on that hill like King Arthur at Camelot. So you um, you like to say begs the question. I say begs the question when I mean petitio principi, and I get on people's case. When when they say it to mean raises, and I don't care if that makes me the old man on the lawn shaking his cane at the kids these days with their Ethernet and their Britney Spears. That's what I'm going. To, that's a hill I'm going to die on. It's what separates us from the animals, and it's not like people are overly careful of their logic anyway. So to destroy, maybe we should like explain what the what the issue is here. All right, all right, all right. Why don't you start it out because I will I will get ranty. Okay, so uh, begs the question is to engage in uh, the classical definition of that is to engage in circular logic so that you're uh, sort of sneakily trying to prove something by assuming the uh, the, the answer. So it's, uh, you know, it's clear that uh, uh, Ken's writing is sleep-inducing because it has a soporific effect. And that's just, you're just using the same assertion that you are setting out to prove and then just stating it as fact. Uh, however... Yes. Or if you ask the question, can America's decline be reversed? Right. Right. You're begging the question because you're assuming that America is in decline, but you haven't demonstrated that. Right. So there's, there's an unquestioned premise at, at work. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in sort of more informal speech, Wrong people speech. often say this raises the question. And they say begs the question in order to say raises the question. So I'm confused now as to whether you oppose or support that. I, I oppose it. I, saying begs the question means begs the question. Saying raises the question means raises the question. We have two different phrases that mean two different things. Don't use phrase one to mean phrase two. Right. You so, are wrong. So we actually so. agree on this. Yes. You're just but, arguing that you more fervently struck it from your lexicon. No, somewhere no. In, I, what, I, I've, I've never said begs the question to say raises the question, but I'm not right. removing... In the womb, you decided never to say this. But I have decided to keep saying it when it is correct. Right. As an excuse to shout at people who do it wrong. Right. So you use the term for circular logic. Mm -hmm. You don't use it for this brings up this topic. Exactly. Okay. And I never have and never will. Right. Uh, well, uh, we, we uh, I guess we agree there. Okay. I thought you, what you were saying was you were going to say, you're not going to say begs the question at all, even when you mean 
uh, Petitio Principi because it just confuses stupid people no. and leads to misunderstandings. Right. I think in context, it actually, if if you know it, I think it's easier to say, oh, that's circular reasoning or you're assuming the presence, but I would not... Or assuming the premise, but I would not okay. strike that from my. I, I I jumped off the I jumped off the handle because this is such a hot button issue for me. Um, uh, your your and, knee and jerked. I, my knee indeed jerked. I I had veritably um, uh, something I don't even know what, but yeah the uh, so no we're on the same side, okay. and I was worried that you were giving in to barbarism, Robin. That was my worry. Okay, well now that we've uh, established that your cartilage was overactive, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you can atone by uh, adding another example of something that you're adding another to, example. Uh, okay, remove from your lexicon. Remove from my lexicon. Um, I am less and less fond of saying Welch on a bet. Um, because I suspect it comes from Welsh on a bet, which is what we started saying after people stopped saying Jew on a bet. Um, and I don't like any of that. Um, I think that there needs to be a better way to say, uh, get out of a bet or not pay up or something. And you can usually change the locution, but I'm, I'm less and less happy with that. I I think it's just an ugly phrase anyway, and I don't like it. Yes. There's a whole range of invective that we have yet to come up with better, uh, terms for that simply excoriate the single person that you're attempting to scorch yes, instead of assuming to, that they enjoy polyphonic singing in coal mines yes rather than <laughs> an impugning uh, impugning someone by uh comparing them to a, a currently or formerly marginalized group is is uncool mm-hmm. but there's a a long list of things that you uh have to remove there fortunately i don't have a huge list of those but there are you know some and the ones that you that have sort of survived are the ones where uh, you know, at least in North America, discrimination against the Welsh is not something that, uh, you know, they're <laughs> not at the front of the line in, uh, in having to have grievances addressed at this point. Yeah, they're, they're not down throwing leaks at people. Uh, when, um, yeah. uh, and, and then there's the, we could have a whole other segment on the weird acceptability of uh, stereotyping the Irish uh, in North America. <laughs> Well, that's because so many of us do it to ourselves. Well, yeah, so I guess so. So uh, going back to obnoxious-sounding things that creep into business uh, correspondence, I do, weirdly enough, have to find myself resisting saying going forward, even though I hate it. Oh, an evil temptation. Yes. Yeah. Um, And uh, I think it's because it sort of seems like a more active term. I think the appeal of it is like, uh, we want to avoid this in the future, uh, seems more passive, where... If we want to uh, avoid this going forward, I think the appeal of it is that uh, it seems like you're active. Yes. You're you're doing doing something. something. We're going to boldly go forward and not do this thing in the future. Um, And uh, I guess uh, and I think it's just because it's overused. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't I don't actually want to go forward into the future any faster than I already am. Yes. Ideally, there are there are certain carefully selected segments of the past I'd like to stay in as long as I possibly can. the uh, speaking of horrible things from business that have polluted our uh, communal well, and that I find myself suddenly doing uh, as, as by dint of being a, a, a happy-go-lucky person who talks to everyone with a song in his heart and openness in his soul, I find myself using the word impact as a verb, oh, um, which oh. is one of the worst things you can do yes. as a human. It, it's right up there with you know genocide and not recycling your aluminum. Yeah, and I, I I see it come out of my my keyboard and I'm like ah. And I, I have to take it back, and, and but it's gotten to the point where I actually have to look at what I'm writing and think about it, which I hate doing anyway, but as as anyone can tell who's read my stuff, da dum dum but I, I really don't like um, seeing that happen, and, I'm, and, I, and of course you see it everywhere now. Uh, I mean, you talk about 
you know, if begs the question is, is besieging the hill, you know, let, let's impact that as t- conquered the territory and right. set up its imaginary uh, Russian dynasty. Well, it's like going forward, right? It takes yeah. something passive. It has, this has an impact on, is a passive construction. Mm-hmm. This impacts the unicorn supply, mm-hmm. then makes it a, an active construction. And maybe that's okay, but it's just, uh, I think, I think what the problem is though, is once you, once you lay it out like that, the real problem with it, not that it's ugly and stupid, but the real problem is that it's also still lazy because if you could, if you know enough about the unicorn situation to say that this thing has an impact on it and you want to use that verb, say this exacerbates the unicorn situation, this marginalizes the unicorn situation, this, this staves off the, the unicorn, yeah. this improves the unicorn situation. Yeah. It does something else besides interact with it with an impact, right? It, right. It, there is an effect, and if you know enough about the impact, you know at least a possible effect. You say, this could improve the unicorn situation if you know that it's going to do something, but we don't know what. Or spend another line. Explain to me you know, what, what the possibilities are for unicorns. Now I'm interested. It's a cotton but, candy word. It seems to uh, represent more and have a bigger uh, impact than, than it does. Than it's, it does. Uh, right. But... But but it's so prevalent that you know even even decent people it, it's like um, uh, white people worry about um, uh, the chemtrails. But even worse though, they're up there in the sky falling down and making us speak wrong. Right. But even worse than this impacts that is this is impactful. Oh yeah. Well, impactful is is still um, is still uh, exile from all decent human. That that those people should just stay in business correspondence with each other. That that that's why we have business schools, as far as I'm concerned. Is to weed out everyone who says impactful it's on purpose. Segregate all the the bad them, writing. Keep that them is... away. Keep them in their first class airport departure lounges where they won't touch nice people. Right. So I, I guess sort of the the common themes here are uh, uh, things that are trying to uh, evoke something, but in fact are just really horribly insensitive in to historic atrocity or, or injustice, or things written in business or government speak, which are <laughs> meant to appear to have meaning, but not. Right. So I, I think between those two things, uh, we have some broad categories of things that we, we can all excise from our uh, collective vocabs uh, as we uh, sneak to our next wordy segment. The ancient creaking wooden stairs, cluttered as they are with cobwebs, and on the cobwebs there are spiders, and some of the spiders have the face of Aleister Crowley on them, warn us that once more, oh yes, and there's the portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowering down on us, that we're entering the comfy parlor of the consulting occultist who sits in his creaky leather chair, this time to take us back, way back to the 19th century, and once more another look slice of American spiritualism, which was all the rage back there. And speaking of things that were all the rage, electricity was starting to be a thing. And uh, as spiritual movements are wont to do, the spiritualists of that time focused on electricity as a sort of a, a metaphor for something that could bind science and spirituality the way that New Agers do with uh, quantum mechanics today. Uh, so uh, someone, uh, in particular John Murray Spear, decided to take that metaphor and make it into a machine. Ken, where do you start telling us the story of John Murray Spear? Well, when I told this story back in the day, I started with Walt Whitman, I Sing the Body Electric. 
The armies of those I love engirth me, and I engirth them. And I think that starting with Walt Whitman makes everything better, and I should do more of it. Uh, John Murray Spear started out as a uh, universalist, a sort of evangelical universalist, an active guy, a very uh, socially forward-thinking fellow. Uh, he was very much anti-slavery. He was anti-the death penalty. He wanted prison reform. He wanted women to get the vote. He wanted everyone to stop drinking the demon rum. He was quite a fellow. And, and, and once again, that's a very common thread for right. uh, 19th century spiritualism, that it was uh, intertwined really heavily with uh, progressivism to the consternation of some other progressivists. And in this particular case, it was to the consternation of a mob in Portland, Maine, <laughs> which beat him within an inch of his life. And yes. I suspect it was this that caused him to start hearing voices. Um, not to medicalize uh, this guy's uh, craziness, but I think that when you start hearing voices after you've been beaten within an inch of your life, it doesn't take Paracelsus to draw the line there. Now, as someone so, who, who tries not to inflame the ire of, of angry mobs, how did he inflame their ire? Well, he was uh, agitating against slavery in Portland, Maine, which you would have thought would have been safe enough, but I guess if you're John Murray Spear, every anti-slave activist in the uh, in the upper uh, Massachusetts comes and <laughs> gets ready just to, for the fun of beating you up. Well, that would be every pro-slave activist. Yeah, every, every, that, I should yeah. say, yes. Every pro-slavery activist in the in the upper uh, quadrant comes to beat you up. Anyway, so he, he falls in with, with spiritualism, which, as we know, is starting up right around then also, 1848, the knockings in, in uh, upstate New York. It begins to spread out. He begins by going as a universalist minister to, to talk to these guys and say, perhaps you'd be happier with Jesus than with crazy dead Aunt Martha. But eventually, they sort of lure him into their craziness. Um, and then, uh, in 1852, Benjamin Franklin starts talking to him. Um, Franklin is worried that a local woman has been struck by lightning and sends Spear to go minister to her. And he shows up, and indeed there's a woman who's been struck by lightning. And Spear absorbs the electronic, the electrical fluid from him and um, uh, uh, heals the woman. And as a result of that... Sorry, who's the electrical fluid coming from? Uh, the, the, the woman who was hit by lightning. She was full of electrical fluid. Oh. And so... Uh, John Murray Spear heals her, uh, probably by laying on hands, and uh, sure enough, uh, she's better, and he's full of electrical fluid, and Benjamin Franklin says, now that you have electrical fluid in you, you can build an electrical Jesus. You are my agent for the Association of Beneficence, and Franklin tells him this on April Fool's Day, April 1853. Well, Ben was kind of like that. <laughs> ben was exactly like that. And you know, this is one of those cases, uh, when I was in, uh, not to d d derail, but when I was in York, uh, in England, there was a book that I bought um, that said that a a, 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 a a regional divine had summoned up Richard III in a seance and asked him if he'd killed the princes in the tower, and Richard III said no. And my argument was, this doesn't prove anything, because even if we assume it was a real seance and you actually summoned up Richard III... If he killed the princes in the tower, he's still lying about it. Ask the princes. Right? Ask the princes. That's who you summon up. Who did you was did, was that your uncle with the pillow, yeah. or was it some other guy? Uh, something like that. So I'm sure if we if we channeled Nixon, we would not get a straight answer either. <laughs> uh, well, uh, <laughs> I am rain. not a spirit. I am not a ghost. Uh, but politics that is another day. The uh, Benjamin Franklin says that uh, Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush and Thomas Jefferson were getting together to ab abolish slavery from the hereafter, and they were going to bring Daniel Webster and John Hancock and Lafayette and Emanuel Swedenborg and just the whole League of Extraordinary Patriot Ghosts to um, battle uh, evil everywhere, 
And Franklin then says, your job is to produce this technological messiah and create the soul-blending telegraph and the electrical ship and um, uh, all the male and female mediums can get together and generate electricity through methods that we probably can't talk about on this show. Um, well, this sounded crazy until I realized that it was uh, someone with Benjamin Franklin as their tutelary shamanic spirit. Now it, yeah, now all, it makes all sense. falls into place. Yeah. So the, the key to all of this is to build the new, mort- the new motor, which uh, Spear builds in Lynn, Massachusetts, um, uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin, ask for water. They give you a gin. It's the damnedest <laughs> place you've ever been in. Um, that is the town that John Murray Spear comes to with is mingling into one female mediums, people wandering about in shifts, uh, anti-slavery, Benjamin Franklin, the whole nine yards. And he gets ready to build the new motor in a big, uh, outbuilding in the house of the Hutchinsons. Uh, the Hutchinsons were his, um, uh, were, were his uh, sort of converts in the area. And so, like many itinerant cultists, he needs rich landowners so that he can properly cultify. So this was not technically a barn, as, as Laura would have it? It might have been a barn. It might have been a, it might have been a, a veritable uh, a stable, okay. suitable for Messiah borning. Right. Um, the, uh, you, you will appreciate this. Uh, in Lynn, Lynn is so bad that the Quakers riot in Lynn. <laughs> So that's what Lynn is about. So it's sort of like a little bit of the burned over district just in Massachusetts. So we need a drama system pitch for this we, place. We need a drama system pitch for Lynn. So much we need. But anyway, um, he builds uh, the new motor in the shape of a human being out of about uh, $2,000 worth of materials, which is about fifty grand today. Um, it's zinc and copper plates become the brain. There's giant steel legs. There's steel magnet arms that come out of, your, um, uh, out of these spheres. Uh, on on its on its body, it has antennas that stick up to the rafters to draw down the electrical power from heaven. It has flywheel lungs, all kinds of bits built by uh, Benjamin Franklin through the hands of John Murray Spear. Uh, there's a line that I uh, that I quote that uh, says, um, "The builders agreed that Spear's complete ignorance of the mechanical or scientific arts was a bonus." <laughs> He was not hemmed in by preconceptions. And he wouldn't want to try and improve on Franklin's design, and I guess that was the problem with Franklin trying to talk to everyone else. Well, so the ghost of Fran- Ben Franklin is notorious for not wanting to take notes. But again, the ghost of Ben Franklin is also encouraging him to get busy with everyone, which is, again, exactly, exactly what Ben Franklin what ben would ben tell Franklin you to do. do. Yep. This is so much Ben that Franklin. That just proves the point. Yes. So nine months after they began building the, the new electrical Jesus... Uh, they had the medium Sarah Newton, who was one of the new, who was the new Mary. There were a lot of new Marys uh, running around to get holy spirited up. Um, she comes in, she lies on the floor and engages in a sympathetic pregnancy ritual, delivering a visible vibratory motion, as they say, to the new motor. And it lives and the electrical Jesus was born on June 29th, 1854. And then everything became great. We had the electric boat. We had the um, uh, spirit radio. Everything happened, uh, as, as we know today. Dirigibles, right? yeah. Dirigibles, all of that. What actually happened was there was an awful lot of, even in Lynn, they felt that this kind of thing <laughs> was not on. This <laughs> is bringing down the tone of our Gamora. Bringing down the tone of our Quaker rioting, drunken, debauched town, um, because uh, all the zinc is gone, I guess. And so they began to protest at the Hutchinsons. Spear fortunately hears from the spirits that what he needs to do is move the new motor and the electrical Jesus to Randolph, New York, and put it up on a hill. And Randolph, New York, of course, is right in the heart of this um, uh, crazy town that is uh, the burned-over district. 
But when he does it, he moves it in, and then in August, Spear comes in and he says that the spiritual motor has been crucified by boys. Uh, the the uh, area children broke in and tore up the electrical motor and oh, stole all scamps. the zamps. Those scamps. However, there is no report from anyone who is not John Murray Spear that this ever happened. So what might have happened is he just took it apart and sold it for parts. Or, of course, what I think happened is Electrical Jesus came to life and wanders the America today, curing people and getting busy with female mediums, even as Benjamin Franklin, his spiritual father, would want him to do. So uh, <laughs> do do we need to specify how you would use this in a game? That you would... I, I hardly think that I need to tell people how to use 1850 Robot Jesus in your role-playing game, especially since he's got the power of the uh, subtle fluid from Benjamin Franklin and a head full of exciting new, it's not even steampunk technology, it's crazy uh, Franklin punk technology uh, to, to build. Uh, plus, getting busy with female mediums and spirit communication. What's not to love about that guy? I, I think that just... So we've talked a lot about sort of the mid-century team of uh, Americana heroes. So uh, mm-hmm. Electric Jesus could be your Dr. Manhattan of the group, or he could be... Uh, uh, an antagonist figure, I suppose. Right. He could be. He could be like the robot man in your mi- mid-century Doom Patrol. He could be your Doctor Manhattan, or he could indeed be your sort of um, uh, Frankenstein's monster who is now angry at all the humans for leaving him to be torn apart in a barn by children. For those uh, those proverbial punk kids. Right. The worst kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, John Murray Spear did attempt a psychic revolution during the um, uh, Civil War. Uh, that didn't work out. Uh, and then he uh, ran to England and hung out with uh, Sir Richard Burton at a seance. So if you were looking for a way to get an electrical Jesus into the Kaaba at Mecca, that would be your way to do it. I don't know why you would look for that. That's crazy talk. <laughs> and then he went and lived in the Pine Barrens for a while so that he can be connected to the uh, Jersey Devil, if that's what you want. And then dies in 1887, uh, sadly forgotten by history. But eventually... I think that uh, John Murray Spears' Electrical Jesus has a lot to tell all of us. So in a contemporary game, you could be uh, start off with the characters uh, being involved in uh, mob activity and going out to the Pine Barrens to uh, retrieve a, a corpse before uh, it gets uh, dug up by the cops, and instead you can encounter the uh, corpse and then spirit of uh, John Murray Spear and get involved in uh, all manner of true crime slash elliptonic uh, hijinks. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, like I say, you know, once you've got Electrical Jesus, you kind of don't need anything else. Uh, it's its its own fun. Um, you can certainly add, you know, more things to it. You can, you know, tie the whole question of uh, Benjamin Franklin's, uh, you know, the, when they open up his house in London, they found a bunch of dissected bodies in the basement, right? Tons of human bones so who's down the in the basement. Who's in this? Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin. Yeah. So... Either he is conspiring in anatomism, which is the happy version of this, or, of course, he's a cannibal. And, you know, once you've got cannibal ghoul Benjamin Franklin, now you've got sort of a Cthulhu twist on your uh, on your uh, electrical Jesus that it becomes sort of like Nirlathotep, the electrical experimenter wandering around. Maybe uh, John Murray Spear actually gave birth to Nirlathotep up there in that uh, in that Massachusetts hellhole. <laughs> now, was Spear sort of too fringe for the fringe? Did he not uh, have a lot of uh, people he influenced? Or are there other occultists who picked up bits and pieces of what he was doing and uh, continued it on? 
I don't think that Spear had a lot of influence qua influence later on, right? I mean, he was a big deal at the time, and he, you know, hung out with a lot of top-notch folks uh, at one time or another uh, in the in the land of crazy. Uh, like I say, he was at a seance with um, uh, Sir Richard Burton and with Alfred Russell Wallace on the topic of angering God. Um, and so there's all manner of, of, of things there, but the, he really comes back into his own in the sort of, I don't want to, you know, maybe the hipster elliptony era when we're looking at things like uh, uh, the uh, John Keeley Worrell's imaginary motor and some of these other things. And then it's sort of the Americana instinct to kind of reach back and say, oh, look, back in the day, back when men were men and Walt Whitman was caressing boys, this is the way that uh, America began crazy. And it, it's sort of a, it, it's got that same sort of, you know, um, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, Levi's ad quality to a, the, the elliptony now that, that people are bringing him in. But I don't think that, you know, Spears' various uh, communes fell apart, as communes tend to. And his writing is primarily about uh, things to do with your awesome electric new motor. Um, he had a, a big book called, what was his big book called? The New Motive Power, I believe. And uh, and that, of course, is the same sort of um, incoherent. Which was his name for the machine. Right? Yeah, right. And and he had, um, I think, a publication called The New Era, which was his, his little magazine at the time. But he was not a, uh, I, as with so many things, I think to be really influential, you have to stay in the big city and write a lot of books. And then that people will pay attention to you. But if you're off on a hill building Electric Jesus, um, unless your Electric Jesus actually assembles 12 electrical apostles and sends them out to convert the world, you're kind of going to be forgotten until um, people like Theo Pagemans put you into a book about an entirely different crazy person. Well, still, it's it's a great metaphor for the coming of the industrial age and the industrialization of spirituality and, uh, I guess, yet another example of sort of the entrepreneurial uh, American spiritual tradition of, uh, you know, rugged individualism, not just in... Uh, your pursuit of your business affairs, but in your pursuit of uh, building your beliefs, in this case, literally building your beliefs. Um, so uh, I guess my standard question about these guys is uh, to what extent uh, was he a, a con man? Was he a true believer in his own uh uh, doctrine, or was he? Uh, was there a bit of a scamster to him? Well, I mean, I think when you uh, assemble fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment and then no one knows what happens to it, there's got to be some degree of scamming going on. But that said, he was genuinely, you know, badly damaged in the head, and at some point, even to have uh, sex with an awful lot of new Marys in Lynn, Massachusetts, you have to buy some of you have to eat some of your own applesauce if if that's the metaphor i'm looking for right i think that he is a genuine believer in his own stuff but like a lot of true believers his true belief coincidentally also means he gets to keep all the zinc and have sex with nubile young spiritualists as opposed to has to actually go out and improve anyone's life. He does the improving people's life. He does a lot of that before being beaten up. And even before the war, he's involved in the Underground Railroad for a while. And then he just gets distracted building electrical Jesus. Um, so I, I think we probably uh, nibbled this down to the uh, to the core. Are, are there any pop culture references uh, to him? Or is he still waiting for somebody to make the great Electric Jesus barn movie? I don't think that he is in the pop culture qua pop culture. I think he's still in the fringe of the of the, of the elliptony. Uh, 
you you find him like I say mostly in people who are writing about other sort of electrical experimenters and they you know give a callback to Spear. There is a biography of him uh, that was published by Notre Dame University Press, and I think in that way that you were talking about as a uh, metaphor for mid-century America and for the the self-made man, literally in a lot of senses. And again, I think that that does argue that, you know, when you talk about America having a national culture, the fact that our crazy people go crazy in the same way that our geniuses go genius is indicative of something, right? Uh, I, I couldn't agree more, <laughs> uh, which I think is a good point of agreement uh, on which to end this episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Odyssey Con. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Electrify our barn by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. Join the company of such luminaries as... Andrew Miller. Jonathan Donald. And Robert Abrazado. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or tonal subtlety by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. Catch us both at CthulhuCon in Portland, Oregon. April 25th and 26th. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.